morning, everyone. Good morning. Welcome to our uh, first Sunday school of the year. And at the end of last year, we decided that we would go through the book of the Revelation. So I'm happy to be able to kick that off for us today. There's a handout on the pew, but near the back, one of the back pews, just on the end, uh, if you want to grab that. And sorry about the length of the first handout. I meant to put it on pages back to back rather than have four pages there, but we we're having trouble with the, the printer. <clears throat> and so today what I'd really like to do is just kind of give a little bit of an introduction um, in the time that we have. And during our study here, we're going to be relying on four sources primarily. First and foremost, the scriptures, obviously, but also Dr. Godfrey um, did a series on the Revelation, and he actually has an unpublished manuscript, which he was kind enough to pass along to me, and I used it when I preached through the book um, of Revelation in Loveland, Colorado. So it's unpublished. I hope that he publishes it someday because it's fantastic, but a lot of what we say in this class will be based on his excellent work there. And then Dr. Dennis Johnson wrote a book called Triumph of the Lamb. It's one of the best books on on Revelation. We have a copy of it here in our library, and we have several copies at the seminary. If you want me to bring one down for you, I'd be happy to do that as well. So Dennis Johnson's work. And then G.K. Beale, um, he wrote an excellent commentary. It's very, if you want to dig deep, it's a thousand pages. Um, there's, there's a lot there, but it's fantastic. It's excellent scholarship and excellent pastoral work. So first and foremost, the scripture, then Bob Godfrey, Dennis Johnson, and G.K. Beale will be the sources that we refer to a lot in this class. But first and foremost, I want to note that this book, as Dr. Godfrey says, I have a quote from him at the beginning of your handout. He says, the book of Revelation has fascinated Christians over many centuries It has inspired thorough study, good spiritual counsel, and an immense amount of silliness. Too often Christians have come to Revelation with a whole list of questions they immediately want answered. What or who is 666? Who is the beast? What is the thousand years described in Revelation 20? These questions and many more are important and fascinating, but in order to answer them correctly, we must understand the basic character and meaning of the book as a whole. And I think that's a great way to start out. Um, It's one of the most fascinating and interesting books in Scripture, and people come with all these different questions. Hopefully, we'll have an opportunity to get through all of them in the time that we have with the class. But I think Dr. Godfrey's focus on what is the character and the meaning of the book is really helpful for us. He goes on to say that Revelation is about the meaning of history, the history of the church, rather than a detailed prophecy of specific events throughout the history of the church. It's to help Christians understand the meaning of the historical events that surround them, no matter the century in which they live, offering encouragement to them in present suffering and filling them with the hope of the coming glory. So more than anything else, I want to recognize that the reason why we have the book of the Revelation is not to cause us confusion or fear or division, it's meant to comfort the Christian. It's meant to assure you that when you look around at the time of John in the first century church, in the fifth century church, in the 12th century church, in the 15th century church, in the 21st century church, when we look around and see what are all these things that are happening and why, that there's a calmness to us 
and a peace about us and an assurance that Christ has conquered, that Christ is risen, that he is ruling and that he is reigning and that how much authority has already been given to Jesus, beloved? All authority in heaven and on earth has already been given to Jesus. We're not waiting for some time when he'll be able to do those things, but he is currently ruling, he is currently reigning. He is the one who came and conquered sin, conquered Satan and conquered death. And there's still this skirmish going on. There's still this war going on between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. And so we see all of these things happening on earth. And revelation is really given to us to comfort us. The very center of the image, the central image in the book of the revelation is the risen and ascended Christ. That's why Dr. Johnson's book is called The Triumph of the Lamb, right? He conquered He's already ruling, he's already reigning. He already conquered our enemies. He's at the right hand of the Father, as we confess in the Apostles' Creed every week, right? That he sits at the right hand of the Father. From there, he will come to judge the living and the dead. So when we look around and we see things that seem scary or difficult or complex or perplexing in one way or another, the word of the book of Revelation wants to come and to comfort us that in the midst of all of that, Jesus is ruling, Jesus is reigning, He's got it. He's got this under control. And he wants us to understand that there is suffering in this present evil age. There, there's still a war going on, right? The world hates God. The unregenerate person hates the Lord, hates his word, hates his gospel, hates Christ. And so there's still this conflict going on. And so we ought not to be surprised by these things. And so when we come to the book of Revelation, we want to come recognizing, as Dr. Godfrey says, it's to help Christians understand the meaning of the historical events that surround them, no matter the century in which they live, offering encouragement to them in present suffering and filling them with the hope of the coming glory. Note that he recognizes, right, we have present suffering. We really are a church under persecution and being uh, in this present age, right, and we suffer as Christians. Sometimes we just suffer because we live in a sin-cursed world and sometimes we suffer for the sake of Christ and for the sake of his church as well. But we recognize that we do suffer. But we recognize that our suffering doesn't have the last word and that's not all there is because the king is coming. The king is on the horizon and he's returning and he's returning soon that he says. So we want to recognize the reason for the book is to bless, to comfort, and to assure, not to freak us out. As Christians, we shouldn't be freaked out. If we have anxieties and cares, which we all do, we're invited to bring them to the Lord and to cast them on the Lord because he cares for us. It's not shame on you because you have these, but what am I going to do with them? Let's not just live in the freaked out state or live in despair, but let's take them to the one who is almighty and to the one who is ruling and the one who is reigning and the one who is in control of all of those things and the one who's returning. It's meant to direct our eyes and our attention off of ourselves and onto our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And it's also given to warn. It's given to warn the world. Psalm 2 is a real thing, right? The nations are raging against the king and his kingdom. And it's a warning. Unless you repent and believe, the things that are prophesied in this book and the things that are told about and things that are even happening in this book will come and visit you. But the way of escape is through Jesus Christ, the crucified, risen, and ascended, and reigning lamb. So it's to bless and to comfort and to assure Christians, and it's to warn the world in a nutshell. Right? There's far more nuance to it, which we'll get to as we go through, but just in our time that we have uh, today.
I wanted to mention that. Turn, if you would, in your Bibles to Revelation. So when Dr. Godfrey's talking about the meaning of the text, sometimes we drill down into what does each specific detail mean or trying to find some direct correspondence to something that happens in a vision to something that's happening in our world today. And we'll see as we go through, that might not be the best interpretive tool. If I were to tell you a dream, hopefully if I told you a dream that I had, you would be able to understand like the meaning of the dream or what the main thrust of the dream was without having to understand every detail in the dream. And actually, Dr. Ball, when he teaches the book of Revelation, he starts by going to Acts 10, where there's the vision of the sheet coming down from heaven that Peter sees. And he says, when you hear that vision, right? Peter's telling you, I had a vision of X, Y, and Z. And there's this sheet that's coming down from heaven. And there's all these different animals that are on the sheet. And the meaning of that is that things that were unclean are now clean, right? But none of us ask, hey, what kind of sheet was it? How could it hold the weight of all those animals? Why didn't they fall off? You know, what about the corners? You know, which particular, like, you get the meaning of it, right? And we do that, we're fine with that in Acts. I'm saying be fine with that in Revelation. That if you don't know every specific detail about why there is a correspondence or what's the correspondence between one thing and another, maybe you aren't supposed to know that. Do you get the meaning of it? And more than anything, the meaning is showing us who Christ is. So like, let's keep that in mind when we read these first opening passages, this opening passage here. It says the revelation, and note it's singular. Sometimes people say the book of Revelations. It's not plural. Right? This is, it's, the revel, it's a revelation about Jesus Christ. So the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you, and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever, amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, And every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and uh, Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, One, like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. 
The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw on my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So far, the reading of God's holy word. What a wonderful passage, right? It sets the tone for all of Revelation because it's highlighting the person and work of Jesus Christ. Note to whom it's written. It's written to his servants. It's not written to the world at large, but to his servants. And note that this is both a revelation from Christ and it's about Christ. It's from the Father in the Son, and it's from the Son to John, and from John to the churches. It's sending a message, and the revelation is revealing who Christ is and that he is. It's from Christ, and it's about Christ. If you want to, someone wants to ask you sometime, like, well, what's the revelation about? It's like, Christ, <laughs> in a nutshell. So many times in modern days when people have images of heaven, you know, they say that I, I visited heaven or I saw a vision of heaven, and most of the time they're describing Kauai, right? It's beautiful. <laughs> you know, there's great beaches and, you know, sunrise and sunsets and dolphins jumping and all these things. It's fantastic. But the central image that you have in the book of Revelation, whenever it's talking about what's central or what's the big deal about heaven, Christ. Ruling and reigning, the lamb that was slain is in the midst of her churches. He is the one that has conquered. He is there. He is there for his people in peace and in power and in his presence forever and ever. If we don't get the image by going through the book of the Revelation of the glorified and risen Christ, we've missed the point of the book. And so at the very beginning, it's highlighting this reality. It's a revelation from Christ, and it's about Christ, and it's to his servants. And then though, one of the biggest challenges people have had throughout the centuries of interpreting this is this, when is it talking about? And it says soon. What soon must take place. And then it's interesting that John says that he is a partner in the tribulation. Note this in verse 9. He says, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and in the kingdom. So we would say we're in the last days. We're in the last hour. Scripture makes it clear. We're not waiting for something else to happen. And then we're going to be in the last day or in the last hour. We're there now. We're in the tribulation. As John was writing about the tribulation that he had a partnership in, he was saying, this is going to be the spirit of the age from now until the sun returns. The next thing to happen on the redemptive historical calendar is the king returns. We're living between the tick of his first coming and the talk of his second coming. And John was a partner in the tribulation. He said, we're in the last days. In another one of his books, he said, 
that, uh, you know, the Antichrist, Antichrists have already come. We're living in the last hour. So we're in the 11th hour. The next thing that we're waiting for is Christ. So obviously there's some things in the book that were written that were happening then, some things that had already happened. It references the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and some that are still to happen in the future, but it's all soon. At the end of the book, Jesus will say, behold, I am coming soon. (laughs) It's in process. He's planning on coming. He's planned his return. And in the interim, what can the church expect? The same kind of persecutions and trials and tribulations that John had are the same kind of trials and persecutions that the church in the 21st century can have. Too many times people will take the images and start to read them as holy future. And so then when it's talking about plagues and locusts, then someone will figure, well, hey, those locusts actually end up looking like a Huey helicopter, right? And they say, well, that means that the army of Russia that's coming with Huey helicopters in whatever year, and you're like... How would that have possibly made sense to the third century church or to the fifth century church or to the first century church? It has to be for the church of all times and in all places to be able to take the meaning and the comfort of this. They didn't have to wait for the invention of some nuclear weapon or some advanced technology. Satan's always been railing against the kingdom of Christ. Satan continues to rail against the kingdom of Christ. And so the images that we have don't necessarily have this correspondence to something that you're waiting for to happen in the 21st century. We recognize we're already in the last days. We're already in the last hour. We're already in the tribulation. And we're not waiting for the kingdom to come. The kingdom has come. The kingdom has come in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And scripture makes that really clear over and over. That's what all of the Old Testament was pointing forward to, a Messiah that was coming, who was going to be a prophet, a priest, and a king. The one who was going to be crushed, but was going to be raised again. He's going to pierce for our transgressions, but raised again to life. All of it was pointing forward to Christ in the Old Testament, and now the New Testament's looking back on the work of Christ that's accomplished in him. So it's already started. Christ's kingdom has been inaugurated. It's not been consummated yet, right? We're waiting for him to return and we're waiting for the fullness of all of the blessings that we have, including our our glorification, our complete sanctification, and the end of all of our warfare. Currently, every day you sin, every day you're sinned against, and every day you live in a sin-cursed world. And that's all you've ever known because that's the only world you've lived in. But when the king comes back, that will be gone. You will never sin again. You'll never have the desire to sin again. You'll never be sinned against, and you'll have no more of the effects of living in a sin-cursed world. It's remarkable. And that's the comfort that it's trying to tell us. Like, If you look around you, if you just look through your lenses and your worldly lenses at the world around you, it just seems like it's hopeless, and it's a mess, and it's chaotic, and it's crazy. And from one perspective, that's true, but that's not the only perspective, and it's not the heavenly perspective. And so Revelation wants to open up our eyes to see things from a heavenly perspective and an earthly perspective. And it's interesting, sometimes it says even the camera angle is, this is what was happening on earth, and this is what was happening in heaven. And you have to be aware of which camera angle are we looking at. Because if you conflate the two and you think this is what it looks like on earth, or this is what it looks like in heaven, you miss it. Sometimes we see what's happening on earth, 
And then John will say, and I saw a vision in heaven. Revelation 5 is a great example of that, where it's really looking back on the ascension of Christ. And John sees this vision where there was nobody worthy to open a scroll. And everyone was just weeping and wailing because whatever was in this scroll, it was obviously important and somebody needed to be able to open it. And nobody on heaven or on earth was found worthy to open the scroll. And then in comes the lamb. And the lamb was worthy to open the scroll and he took it and he opened it and there was rejoicing. That's the heavenly perspective on the ascension. When he comes, the one who is worthy, the one who is slain, the one who, who conquered, And so we recognize that in great reality. And then this opening goes on to talk about blessings. It says, blessed is the one who hears and reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear. Beloved, how does faith come? By what? Hearing. This is meant to strengthen and encourage your faith. It's not meant to scare you. It's not meant to confuse you. It's not meant to divide Christians. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. As you go through the book of Revelation, hopefully your faith in him will be strengthened in the sense of there's nothing outside of his control. No foreign army, no policy, no idol, no serpent, no dragon, no Satan, no nothing is outside the control of the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth now and is ruling and reigning for his church. And it says, uh, blessed are you, and this is the first of seven, right? We'll find that throughout Revelation, numbers are, are symbolic. And this is the first of seven blessings. So by the time we get to the end of Revelation, you're gonna have the fullness of blessings. But this is the first one. This is the first of seven. And we'll see that as we go through it. Obviously, this is a high-level overview right now. But note that it's the first of seven blessings. Blessed are you who hear, And blessed are you who keep, right? And automatically our mind's going to go, well, am I doing enough to keep this? (laughs) Your faith is in Christ. He's the one who paid the penalty for your sins, all of them. And he's the one who lived a life of perfect righteousness on your your behalf. And so it's, it's really drawing our attention again to the person and work of Christ, the one who hears and the one who keeps, the one who keeps on believing in and trusting in Christ and seeking to follow after him. Not in his own strength, not for his favor, but from his favor, from the one who heard from the very beginning, I love you. He goes on to say, right? He loves us. He freed us from our sins. He's the firstborn of the new creation. He's the ruler of the kings on earth. He made us a kingdom. He made us priests. This isn't, if you do these things, you'll be it. He's standing there and saying, I've freed you from your sins. I've purchased you with my own blood. I've adopted you. I'm ruling and reigning for you. I'm coming again for you. I've given you my Holy Spirit. I've made you a kingdom. You're kings and queens. I've made you priests. I've made you holy. And I'm coming back. That's the starting point. That's not the finish line of if you make it through this tribulation unscathed, then you're going to get all these blessings. It's assuring you of these blessings at the very beginning because you're going to wonder, wait, why are all these things happening? Why the suffering? Why the pain? Why the persecution? Why isn't the church, you know, just blossoming and growing in ways unimaginable? It's 
wants to assure us at the very beginning that we are loved, that we are adopted, that we are forgiven, that we are his. And so the very first thing that he says is grace and peace be to you. Because those are the two things that the Christians, all Christians and the church need forever, but between the tick of Christ's first coming and the talk of his second coming. You need grace, salvation, forgiveness, righteousness, adoption, sanctification, the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, the promise of his return. And you need peace. Your enemies are the world, the flesh, and the devil, not the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You have peace with God. You are no longer under any condemnation. And again, that's our starting line. That's what Revelation wants to say in the, at the very beginning and why I'm just hammering this home right now. Because when you get in the middle of chapter 4 or 17 or 18, you're going to be, what's all this stuff? We're going to remind ourselves at the very beginning, who's the revelation about? Who's it from? What's the purpose? And what's the central image? Is Christ. And note that it says this grace and peace are from whom? And it's Trinitarian to the core. It says from him who is and who was and who is to come. That's a reference to the Father the I am, the eternally existent one. And it also says, and the seven spirits. And right, this trips people up. It's referring to the one Holy Spirit. Seven is a number of completion or a number of perfection. So it's talking about the fullness of the spirit. So the, this grace and peace that's being promised to you or given to you is from the Father. It's from the Holy Spirit And it's from Jesus Christ, the Son, who loves us. That's profound. Jennifer played during the offertory today, Jesus loves me. Isn't that one of the most simple and profound hymns ever? How many times do you go through the week and feel unloved or struggled or whatever? Can you stop for a moment and say, Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong. Does that go along with the sermon? What a great reality. Jesus loves you. And he freed us from our sins. And so here we see this Trinitarian to the core. Him who is and who was is to come. The Father, the seven spirits who are before his throne, meaning the fullness of the Holy Spirit, and from Jesus Christ, who did these things. And then you'll notice that Brother John, when he saw these visions, was afraid. And in God's providence, this like tied in really well with the, ser- with the sermon this morning. Think of John as a, a little child in some sense. And Jesus comes to him and puts his hand on him and says, fear not. Can you imagine? I don't know what Jesus' hands look like now, but his hands were pierced for our transgressions, right? I often think when Jesus went to visit Peter right after the resurrection and he said, you know, peace be with you, that if he lifted his hands, like they would have seen the marks. The peace that he's giving to them is a peace that was purchased with his blood, with his crucifixion, with his death, and now he's raised again. Now he's saying, peace be with you. How profound and how powerful and how wonderful to recognize that presence. And so he comes to John here in verse 17. John says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not. 
I am the first and the last and the living one. I died. And behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Jesus doesn't come and touch us in the exact same way that John saw this in a vision. Again, it's in a vision. But he comes and touches us with his love and his mercy and his grace through the Holy Spirit and through the ministry of the word and through the sacrament. How many of you today, right, partook? This body was broken for you. This blood was shed for you. The pastor said, uh, lift your hearts to the Lord. And we said, we lift them to the Lord. Where is our Lord? He's ruling and reigning at the right hand of the Father in heaven even now. This is meant to be an incredible comfort to us. Fear not, little flock. The world hates you. Satan hates you. The serpent hates you. The whore of Babylon hates you. The spirit of the age hates you. But I don't. I love you. Fear not. I've got this. In this age, you're going to have trials. In this age, you're going to have tribulation. In this age, you're going to have suffering. As it went for Jesus, so it will go for you. But fear not. I died, but I live forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades, of life and death. See how the whole thing is meant to focus our attention on Jesus? So that in all the coming things that he's going to unfold, it's going to hearken us back to the very beginning. Don't forget about the one who died and lives again. Don't forget about the one who loves you, the one who's freed us, the one who's the firstborn, the one who's the ruler of kings on earth, even now, the one who is almighty, the one who lives forevermore, and the one who promises to come again. So more than anything else, I just want to get across at the very beginning that it's trying to highlight for us the reality of who Jesus Christ is and that he's the very center of the revelation. It's him ruling and reigning. And then we'll see certain things as we go through. Dr. Godfrey, on the very last thing on your page two of your outline, it says, the whole book is an encouragement that in the face of this world, with all of its complexities, with all of its struggles, confusions, temptations, and difficulties, we are to keep on believing that Jesus is the ruler of the kings of the world. He knows what he is doing. He is accomplishing his purpose. And one day he will make all things new. One day the kingdom will come in its glory, but until it comes in its glory, we are to keep on keeping on. We're to keep on believing and trusting in Christ. And every week, in the presence of our enemies, he feeds us and nourishes us as he calls us together and gathers us to feed us through the words and to feed us through the sacraments to remind us that this world isn't our home. We're citizens of another kingdom. We're citizens of heaven. And already our Lord is ruling and reigning and he's coming back for us. It's meant to assure us. It's meant to comfort us, not to confuse us. Next week, uh, I'll be preaching in Ontario, uh, at Ontario URC, but Dr. Horton is gonna be here and he's gonna go through the letters to the seven churches. But if you can keep... um, Pages three and four are two outlines. One, well, one's an outline by Dr. Godfrey and one's some tools that we're gonna use from Dr. Johnson throughout the book. 
throughout the series. So I don't have time to go through them today and didn't intend to, but I want you to have them. I would encourage you to read them this week, keep them with you in your Bible or whatever you bring to church because we're gonna continue to to use those resources as we go through this series. Any comments or questions? All right. Let me conclude by reading the prayer that Paul prays for the church in Ephesians. At the end of Ephesians chapter three, Paul prays this. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. And all God's children said, amen.